Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to welcome you this morning, and particularly those of you who are guests, whether it's your first time or your first time in a long time, we're glad you're here. Uh, what we're all about here at Chatham Community Church is connecting people to God and to each other so that together we can engage our world for good. And you came on a good Sunday because we're announcing and leading into Chatham Serves, which is one of our hallmark events for engaging our community for good. And we hope that even if you feel like this might not be a church for you, you join us on Chatham Serves Saturday to serve the community and go online and serve with one of the projects. But if you are a guest, uh, I'd love to say hi to you at the end of the service. So I'll be under the exit sign and, and come say hi. I'd love to hear uh, your name, how you found us, and what your experience was like this morning. Before I get into uh, the sermon per se, there's just a couple of things I want to note, some of which are uh, the time of the year we're in, and some I just want to acknowledge some things that have been going on in our country. So this is Memorial Day weekend, and though many of us take Memorial Day weekend to party and go to cookouts and enjoy the summer, and I have nothing against that, uh, it's worth noting that uh, Memorial Day is meant to recognize and remember those who've lost their lives while serving. And I know we have folks here who have family, who have friends, uh, who have folks that are connected to them who have lost their lives while serving. And so I don't want to let the Sunday go by without saying we see you, we mourn with you, we uh, share in, with you in the sort of gratitude and we honor the sacrifice uh, and um, we pray that God would strengthen you. I was uh, with a veteran this past week who was telling stories uh, about folks he served with, you know, acknowledging the weekend that was coming, and happened to mention that um, some of the folks he was connected to who died while serving, uh, their bodies weren't recovered for years on end. And so the grief and mourning process is sort of um, affected by that, by the uncertainty. And so I particularly want to acknowledge and stand with those who are waiting for certainty uh, about what happened to their loved one while they were serving, or oh, those who perhaps will never know the precise truth of what happened before their loved one crossed to the other side of heaven and say, we see you, and we love you, and we stand with you, and we ask the God of all comfort to be with you, not just now, but every day. Um, uh, in addition to that, over the last few weeks, there have been uh, a number of acts of violence that have shaken people to their core and, and have become sort of um, uh, news in our nation, and rightfully so. We've had people uh, suffer violent ends in Buffalo, in California, and most recently in Texas. And so I want to create a space to pray for all that. That is one of the things we do as followers of Jesus. Not just not not because it is uh, the smallest thing we can do, but because we believe that there are spiritual forces at work, and that God can bring God. Uh, God is a God of justice, a God of goodness, and we pray that God makes His presence known in those places. We believe that God can make changes. God can make a difference. Now, there are tons of opinions of what should be done to prevent these from happening again. And I have my own, but I'm not going to share that right now because that's not my position here to do so. I will, what I will pray, and I want you to know what I'm going to pray before I pray so that you can pray in agreement with me. I will pray that the folks who have agency to make decisions that will bring about an end to these sorts of events will make those decisions. You know, there... There's a, there's a tweet that goes around that says, um, you know, uh, thoughts and prayers are not enough. 
I believe thoughts and prayers are significant. But what I think the truth that that gets at is that the folks that have agency to make decisions need to think, pray, and move beyond talking points to action because they have a responsibility. That's the responsibility leaders have, to think, pray, talk, and act. And people want action. I don't know what the right action is, but I want it to be no longer normal that these kinds of acts of violence happen. And I want to say one last thing. There is a stream of theological belief that is pessimistic, that is fatalistic, that says, well, things are just going to get worse until the end. And here's what I want to say to that. That may be true. I'm not saying whether it's true or not. It may be true. But that doesn't mean that the posture of followers of Jesus is to acquiesce and accept. The posture of followers of Jesus is to resist the advance of evil and to believe that we can act for good, that we can advance the kingdom of light in every space. I was in school when Columbine happened which was sort of the bellwether for these things, the thing that many point that sort of set it off. And I remember the feeling of this should not have happened, this is not normal, and this may never happen again. And I feel we've come to a point where we've become numb and just expected that it's not about whether or not this is going to happen again, it's when's the next one. We can get back. I believe we can and should long to get back to the point where these things should not be normal and not be expected. So I'm going to pray in light of all that, and I invite you to join me in prayer. Um, God of all comfort, God of goodness, God of truth, God of power, God of love, God of reconciliation, God who makes all things new, God who fixes the broken and makes it whole, we need you. The folks in Buffalo need you. The folks in Texas need you. The folks in California need you. The folks in places that I haven't even remembered to mention. And it grieves me that there are so many more places where we need to pray these prayers. They need you. And we need you. We need you. Lord, I pray that for those of us here and around our country who have simply acquiesced to these things happening. Lord, I pray that you would give us a sense of holy discontent. Holy discontent at these things. Lord, that we would live as if these things ought not to be and we would be ever uncomfortable whenever they are, God, until they stop being. Lord, I pray for us as community here, for anything we can do, to make this world, to make our county, to make our town, to make our workplaces, to make our schools, to make our, our, our families, to make the places where we inhabit, the types of places where these things don't happen. Any action we can take, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us wills to obey, that you would give us creativity and that we would act, Lord. And for those who are in those places, who are now being called on to respond, Lord, I pray that they would pray because they need your wisdom. They need your guidance, and I pray that you would give it to them. I pray that they would think, that they would come up with strategies, that they would be creative in their ideas. I pray that they would talk, that they would dialogue beyond just talking points, beyond just blaming, beyond just finger-pointing, that they would talk. And I pray that those who have agency to act, particularly the leaders in communities and in our country, would act because that's the responsibility of a leader, to act, to use the agency that's been given to them and act. 
Lord, I don't know what the answers are. You know what the answers are. I don't know what the right path is. You know what the right path is. I just want it to happen. I would rather be wrong about what the right path is and have these things never happen again than think I'm right and have it continue to happen because no one takes action. I pray that that would be true of every leader who has agency to do something about this, Lord. Lord, Lord, hasten the day when these things are no more and hasten the day where we no longer accept them as normal. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for praying with me, and thank you for indulging that slight diversion. Um, and uh, we'll get around to the sermon now. <laughs> so this is just a hard shift. I'm just going to acknowledge that. We're going to pivot uh, strongly right now to something different. Uh, smartphones have been around since the early 2000s and have grown to be fairly, fairly ubiquitous in the last 20 years. And I forgot to bring up my smartphone. I wanted to show it to y'all, but it's over there. Y'all know what they look like. Uh, and I was a long-time holdout for smartphones. In fact, I was proud of the fact I didn't have a smartphone. I came to have my first smartphone less than 10 years ago. Uh, now, some of you who are younger are like, less than 10 years ago, I just got mine two years ago. But just know that I was uh, in my 30s less than 10 years ago when I got my smartphone. And for people of my generation, that is late. That is late. Most of my friends already had one. I got teased about not having a smartphone, but I was proud of it. I was proud of not being tethered to it, uh, and I was proud of not having a sky-high phone bill every month to pay for data. But I remember the day I decided that I needed a smartphone. I was out on Long Island, which is uh, an area in New York, where I was overseeing a territory for the nonprofit I was working for. And I had just spent, it was either a day or I was on the second day of a two-day trip of sort of visiting locations, supervising people, and just driving around Long Island. And I was driving back home late in the day, and I was in my car, and I had my handy-dandy Magellan brand GPS mounted on, and I was following directions to get home because I, 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 my commute was minimum an hour, maximum an hour and a half, depending on where on Long Island I was driving to, and I had to drive through New York City to get back home, and so I was following uh, this GPS when all of a sudden it decided to stop working. And I was driving in New York City traffic, which, by the way, if y'all call what y'all have here, what we have here in Raleigh and Durham and North Carolina traffic, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's a walk in the park compared to New York City traffic. I was driving in traffic, and I didn't know where to go, and it was rush hour, and people were speeding, and they were honking. And the thing with New York City is if you take the wrong exit, it's not just that you could get lost for hours. You could end up paying tolls that will cost you an arm and a leg. And so I was anxious. I didn't know what to do. And so what I did was I called someone, and I had them Google the directions and then walk me through, stay on the phone with me the whole trip. I kept resetting the odometer, right? Okay, how many miles am I on this road? Okay, boom. Okay, what exit am I looking for? That was pain. And I got home and I said, no more. No more. And so I got a smartphone. Uh, and uh, I use my smartphone for all sorts of things besides navigation. Maybe you do as well. There are all these things called apps in a smartphone that have replaced things that I used to carry around with me. I used to carry CDs, right, books on CD with me uh, on these drives. Now I don't. Now I, have an, I have, now I have multiple apps on my phone 
with books. Uh, I have not had a planner. I've not owned a planner and have not owned an alarm clock in the time I've had a smartphone. I use it to communicate with people. Uh, sometimes I don't take my laptop places because whatever I need to do, I can do on a phone. The reality is that the smartphone has substituted or has replaced tons of devices and tools I used to use. It's proven useful in so many situations and circumstances that it's become, like those of you who remember the old Mastercraft, uh, MasterCard um, ad, I don't, leave, I don't leave home without it. I don't leave home without my smartphone, or I rarely do. It's become integrated into my life. It's part of every, almost every part of my life. This is the first week of a series that we've titled here at Chatham Community Church, Integrated, Faith and Life Together. Following Jesus is not just about having the right beliefs or about thinking the right things. It gets lived out every day in small ways and in big ways as well. And the New Testament book of James is particularly focused about how our faith gets lived out in the very practical day-to-day that you and I live. Through his writings, James calls committed Christians or communities of Christians to live in such a way that their faith permeates every area of their lives. Remember, these are, or maybe you don't know this, but this is an early community of people trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And James is telling them it needs to permeate every area of your life. And that call, that our faith should permeate every area of our lives, is still relevant today and still desperately needed. People need to see that there are others who are fully committed to their faith, and it is integrated into every aspect of our lives. They need to see the difference that faith can make in big ways and in little ways. Because here's the thing. There is no situation. There is no circumstance in which our faith doesn't have something to say. There is no situation in which our faith is useless. Our faith is useful and informs how we engage or can engage every single part of our lives. It's it's applicable and useful in every scenario. It is worth integrating. And so today, we're going to look at a passage that talks about how faith shapes some of the more challenging moments of our lives, some of the hard times of our lives, how having an integrated faith can help us engage the hard times and get through the hard times. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and find James chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 2 to 8 and 12 to 18. And if you don't happen to have access to a Bible, uh, we're going to put it up on the screen in just a second. James is towards the end of the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, And if you are in Acts, you need to go a little bit further. So go ahead and find James if you want. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8 and 12 to 18. And if not, here we go. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And we'll skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under the trial, because 
Having stood its test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who loved him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly light, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. Now, back when I was an engineer, uh, one of the things that I did as an engineer was I would take some of the machines that we built and I would take them to a facility we had. We, we built uh, concrete grinders and polishers, and we had this warehouse that was just concrete. It was just laid out concrete. All, that's all it was. Sometimes we would also prepare concrete slabs. But I would take these machines and I would take a set of tools and I would go to this warehouse and I would attach measuring devices to the machine and I would begin to test the machine and test its performance with different tools. And in addition to that, I'd add to the machine weights, right? These little horseshoe weights to the machine to weigh it down, ever-increasing weights. I think each one of those was 25 pounds. And I'd take measurements, and I was trying to figure out how well a machine performed with each tool and under different kinds of weight and strain. And I wanted to see when and if they might fail, just to know the quality of the machine we were producing. In engineering, this is what's called a stress test. And stress tests are used in a number of fields to sort of gauge when things will fail and how they will perform. And it seems... Like what James is acknowledging here as he's writing is that stress tests are not exclusive to engineering and manufacturing, nor for those of us who've taken them. Stress tests are not exclusive to figuring out whether our heart is in good shape or our lungs are in good shape. Stress tests can come in different areas of life as well. They come to all of us. There are times when we experience different circumstances, different types of pressure, different types of things that sort of weigh on us, and we don't always hold up well, do we? We don't always sustain. We don't always maintain. Now, sometimes the pressures are internal. Those pressures are internal, and we end up having in those moments of stress tests, moments where our character is compromised, or moments where we make a choice that we know goes against the grain of what we aspire to be or who we aspire to be. And sometimes the pressures are external, and it gets to a point where we think this is not worth it. And we just sort of deviate or set aside or stop pursuing a goal, a commitment, or a dream that we had. James is speaking to a community of people who have faith and his guidance here, his guidance in this first chapter seems to be pointed towards helping people of faith remain in the midst of stress tests, endure in the midst of stress tests, get through in the midst of stress tests, remain integrated during the stress tests. And that word is for us as well. There are ways for us to remain integrated when we have faith during the stress test. Now, you may be here and you might be like, well, I don't have faith in Jesus. I want to advise you to not check out because indirectly, James is also making the case 
that having an integrated faith in Jesus during the stress test is the best possible way for any of us to participate or to engage with the hard times of life, to get through the challenges, to get through the difficulties. So I want to invite you to consider whether there might be an invitation for you today to engage with Jesus, to embrace faith, and to then overcome and endure the stress tests in your life in a different way than you've been able to so far. So I want to invite you, all of us, for a second to just consider a stress test that we've experienced recently, a place where you've felt pressure, where you've felt challenge, whether external or internal, something has produced resistance in your life. And maybe it's causing you to strain. I want you to consider that. Keep that in mind as we talk about this. Maybe consider how faith has played a role in how you've engaged in that stress test. And if faith isn't playing a role, how it might play a role. Keep that in mind as we continue through this sermon. Now, James starts broad in his understanding of stress disorder, and he talks about stress tests. He sort of paints a, a big picture of how to engage in them. You might even say that this, is, that this might be just external pressures, the, the, the external stress tests. And then he gets really specific about the internal stress tests, the ones that challenge our character, the ones that challenge our moral compass. I'm going to start there, and then I'll end broader. We're going to start with that internal stress test. James calls these things temptations. Now, in a big-picture sense, what a temptation is, temptations are invitations to choose something other than God's best for us. I'm going to say that again. In a big-picture sense, temptations are invitations to choose anything other than God's best for us. I want to clarify, temptations aren't just invitations to choose something that is obviously bad. They are anything that pulls us away from God's best for us. Anything that pulls us away from God's best. And here are what temptations present. Temptations present each of us with the opportunity to obtain something we want and oftentimes something good. They present us with the opportunity to obtain something we want, something that is good. But in order to obtain it, they invite us to bend our character, to compromise our commitment, to maybe take a shortcut. They stress test our moral compass. They invite us to get to a destination before it's time. And temptations are alluring. They are alluring because they make a really good case. If they didn't make a good case, they wouldn't be temptations. They'd be easy to get by, but they are alluring. They seem convincing. Sometimes they convince us that that shortcut is worth it, that what we'll get is worth it. Or they may tell us, actually, that bending, that compromising, that shortcut is actually not that bad in the grand scheme of things. Or they may tell us, you know what, it doesn't matter because what you're going to get, what you're going to get is so much better that it's okay to have compromised this part. Right? It's okay to lie in this way if it gets you the job. It's okay to embellish your skills if you get the position. It's okay to cheat if you get the A, because the A is worth it. What's an exam in the grand scheme of things? And that may be true, but what is our character in the grand scheme of things? What is our moral compass and guidance in the grand scheme of things? See, 
temptations promise. They promise that the shortcut is worth it, but in reality, all they are is smoke and mirror. All that temptations promise are ultimately mirages. Anything that, tempta- that a temptation can promise is ultimately a mirage. It's not necessarily a mirage of what you'll get if you give in to the temptation, right? Some of us, we can, we can be honest, we've taken that shortcut to get the job or to get the grade or to get the money or to get something else or to be in good standing, and we've gotten that. We've gotten that. So that feels real. But what is the mirage? What is the mirage is its ability to deliver true and lasting good to your life. So you may get what you thought you were opting for, but it ends up being hollow. It ends up leaving you feeling empty. It ends up leaving you compromised. Just like a mirage promises water in the desert, but only delivers more sand. Temptations promise the good life, but never lead to lasting satisfaction. It is always fading. It is always shifting. So then what does it mean to have an integrated faith in the face of temptation? What does it mean to remain integrated in the midst of the internal stress test? Well, the first thing James does is James clarifies the origin of temptation. The first thing he says is God is not the one tempting us. And that's important to own because if God is the one tempting us, then it's very hard to make a case that God is loving and good because a God who would set up situations where we would be prone to failing him can't be good. Can't be good and loving. Not worth trusting. We would always be in the uncertainty that something that God God offers us might actually be a mirage. That is inconsistent with God's character. God is not the one tempting us. James says that temptations are rooted in something in us. And here's what I appreciate in that. If they're rooted in something in us, then we have the power to resist. If their origin is internal, then we have the power to resist. That's highly empowering. And James traces it all the way down to desires. He says every temptation starts with a desire. Temptations originate in desires. We were talking about this in our small group this past week and just listing some of the desires that can lead to temptation. And people said, the desire for money, the desire for sex, the desire for power, the desire for success, the desire for status, etc., etc., etc. Now, some of those are easy to identify as not great. Others, maybe not so much. But I actually, I think we can take all those desires one level deeper, and there is a deeper origin for that because what is the desire for sex if not a desire for intimacy? or desire for pleasure? What is the desire for power, if not the desire for agency, the desire to be able to do something, sometimes even the desire for independence? What is the desire for success, if not the desire to be recognized, to be acknowledged, to be known, to be seen? What is the desire for money, if not possibly a desire for security, for being able to be safe? And most of those sound good, or at the very least, neutral. So the answer in an integrated faith to resisting temptation can't be to eliminate desires, because some of those desires are good, and actually God wants to fulfill them. The key is to acknowledge that those desires lead to temptation when they are misdirected, when they are directed to something other 
than God. See, it's misdirected desires that give birth to mirages. It's misdirected desires that give birth to temptations. Now, not every desire leads to temptation. I want you to hear that from me because there are schools of thought that have said that desire is bad. Desire is not bad. But every temptation comes from a misdirected desire. Every temptation comes from a misdirected desire. And an integrated faith allows us to recognize that and then redirect that desire. Redirected to God. James turns a corner in this passage from talking about uh, sin, talking about, talking about temptation, which give birth, gives birth to sin, which give, gives birth to death. He turns a corner and then starts talking about what God produces, what God gives birth to. He says, we are God's first fruits. And he says that what originates from God is not temptation, but rather every good and perfect gift. Think about that for a second. Here's this one place, right? These, these desires that when misdirected can give birth to something that leads to death. And you can direct those desires to God. And James says that what originates from God is every good and perfect gift. So when we direct our desires to God, then we know that when they get satisfied, it is good, it is perfect, it is for our benefit. See, temptations promise mirages. But when we direct our desires to God, he leads us to abundant oases. He leads us to places that are real, that are true, that are gratifying, that are filling. He doesn't lead us to mirages. He leads us to an abundant oasis, a place that lasts, that satisfies, that doesn't promise water and delivers sand, but actually promises and delivers life. And life everlasting. Now, it may mean that we have to delay gratification, but it delivers lasting change. I want you to take a moment right there where you are and consider a place of temptation. A place where you feel the tug on your moral character, on your compass. A place where you feel a tug to bend your commitments. I'm not asking you to confess it right now. I'm not asking you to repent of it right now. What I want you to do is take a moment and identify the desire. What's the desire behind it? And what might it look like to direct that desire to God? There's a wonderful passage in Scripture that says, God gives us the desires of our hearts. I love that. Because God not only direct, we not only direct our desires to God and He has good ends of it, but He promises that He will give them at the right time. Direct those desires to God. Now let's go back to the broader view at the beginning of the chapter. James starts talking about trials and temptations or in a very particular way. He starts by addressing our posture. And here's what he says. He says, Consider it pure blank, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now what would be a reasonable thing to put in that blank? Uh, consider it pure misery when you face trials uh, of many kinds. Consider it pure pain. Consider it pure, I don't know, struggle when you face trials of many kinds. But what James puts there is so out of the ordinary, out of what we might expect, that it demands our attention. James says, consider it pure joy. 
Consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. And I have a hard time with that because trials are not fun. Trials are not enjoyable. And James is not saying that they are. He's saying something different. So then, with an integrated faith, how do we develop a posture of joy in facing trials? Because it seems like this is crucial to getting through them. Well, there are two things I want to share about how we can develop a posture of joy in facing trials. And I want to say, I don't think it's possible to develop a posture of joy in facing trials without an integrated faith. I just have not found any other avenue that would lead me to experience joy or to feel joy in the midst of trials. But there are two things that I think can help us with an integrated faith. The first is to remember. Remember is one of those words that gets overlooked because of what it is, but it gets repeated over and over again in Scripture. Over and over again in Scripture, there's an invitation to God's people to remember. And usually they're invited to remember when they're in the midst of a trial. They're in the midst of a trial, and they are being like many of us are in trials. They're like, woe is me. This stinks. We should not be here. Can we go somewhere else? Can we get out of this? And God says, remember. God says, remember. He invites them to look back so that they can press ahead. He invites them to look back when they're stuck so that they can press ahead. And part of what they're invited to look back on, to remember, is all the ways God was with them in the past, particularly in other trials. Oftentimes, God will talk about an even bigger trial that they had experienced, and he says, I was with you there. I delivered you. Remember. 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 It is hard in the midst of a crisis, to think that the crisis might be over. It is hard in the midst of a trial to believe that the trial will pass. It is hard to endure when it feels like the pressure are are all on top of us. But when you know, when you remember that that past trials have ended, when you remember that past hard circumstances have ceased, when you remember that God has delivered you in the past, then, then the door is open to experience joy. Because if God did it then, then, and God is unchanging, then God is going to do it now. Then God will do it again. We may not know when, we may not know how, but God will do it. God will do it when we remember. Now, some of us don't have a long track record with faith. And so we don't have lots to remember from our own lives. But there's lots to remember in the lives of the people in Scripture and the lives of people around you. So this is a double encouragement. One, if you're new to faith or you're new to persevering through to trying to persevere through trials and you want to experience joy, ask the people around you about how God got them through a trial. Remember through them. And for those of us who've been through it, we've got to tell the story. We've got to tell our stories. Right? A good old uh, Christian word in some faith traditions is we got to testify. we got to testify. Not just so that we can remember, but because there are people around us who need to borrow our experience to help them press forward while they build theirs. Let's remember. This past year, uh, I've been going through a trial. Some of you know that I am going through a separation and divorce in my marriage, and it's been incredibly difficult. And at the beginning of the separation, it was almost, I think, the second day, um, I felt God inviting me to journal. And so I've been journaling every, almost every day throughout the last, what's it been, nine months, I think, at this point. 
And every once in a while, because this has been hard, when I experience pain, when I experience difficulty, when, it, when I'm finding it hard to press forward, I'll go back and I'll read the journal. And I'll read all the ways God has met me. And I'll read all the blessings that have come. And I'll read all the ways he has strengthened me and comforted me and, and brought me gladness, many of which, many, which, many occasions which involve people who are here in this room. And then I'm able to press forward in the day. I'm remembering, friends, to get through my trial. And it is allowing me to experience joy. In fact, I want to say this, that many of you throughout this challenging time have commented on my joy. And I want to say that that joy is not because I'm ignoring the pain. That joy is not because I am happy that these things are happening. I'm not. That joy is because God has done something in me in the remembering to change my posture to help me get through. He can help you as well. Now, tied to remembering is the second thing that positions us to have joy in trials. Because once you remember that God has gotten you through trials, then the invitation is to believe and hold on to the fact that what's on the other side of the trial is so good that it will eclipse the pain of the trial. Now, I want to I offer a very careful word here. I am not saying that the trial, the pain of the trial, is good. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is that whatever God has on the other side of the trial is so good, so much better that it will eclipse the pain. Not that we need to forget it, not that we need to ignore it, not that we need to pretend we didn't happen, but that we have something waiting for us to embrace that will be all the much better. Now, in addition, in addition to all this, in addition to being able to have a posture of joy, James also gives us a, a guarantee, a promise. He gives us confidence in the trial because he's really says that God guarantees to give us what we need for the trial. Do you notice in this passage, there is a guarantee. It says there's something you can pray for that you will receive. There are very few guarantees like that during Scripture. And the thing that is guaranteed is wisdom. James says if you ask for wisdom, God will grant it. You hear that? There are plenty of times where, where we hedge in prayer. We say, well, you know, we ask for things and if it's God's will. And here's one that's promised. It says, it is God's will to give you wisdom. If you ask without doubt. Now, I'll be very clear. That doubt is not general. It's very specific. If you ask for wisdom during a trial without doubting that it will be delivered or that God can deliver it, God will always give it. God will always give it. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to know what the path is. Now think about the trial you may be going through or trials you might be having, have gone through in the past. How much different would your experience have been if at the outset you knew the path forward? doesn't mean that the path was going to be easy, but that you knew, that you knew what the path forward was. That's what wisdom provides us. Wisdom provides us knowledge of the path. And here's the image I have when I think of what wisdom does to us in trials. I have the image of someone on a bike in training wheels. And to me, wisdom is like the training wheels. Wisdom gives us the ability to remain upright in the midst of the trial. But you know what wisdom doesn't do, what those training wheels don't do? They don't move you ahead. And here's the key in trials. Now comes our part. Our part is to persevere. Do you get that? That's all God asks of us in the midst of trial. 
is to persevere, is to press ahead. Wisdom makes it possible for us to remain upright in the trials, and our part is to pedal. Our part is to persevere. Our part is to press ahead. Our part is to press ahead. Every trial has off-ramps. Every trial has moments where we can choose out. But if we pedal, if we persevere, we will receive what's on the other side. Maturity, wholeness, completeness, and not lacking anything. Here's what the passage says at the end. Blessed is the one who perseveres under the trial because having stood the test of time, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What we have on the other side at the end for those of us who persevere is that crown of life, that fullness, that joy, that thing that we were made for, the life we were made to live. Friends, not all maturity comes through trials. Not all of it does, but a good bit of it does. A good bit of it does. It seems we can't be fully mature without persevering. So let's do so. I want to read you a story or I want to read you some, some, a, a quote from someone in our church who's been going through a trial. In fact, this person has gathered a group of people who are going through trials, particularly the trial of being widowed. And here's what she says about the trial. And I want, you, I want to hear it in her words. She says, when you are in the midst of trials, losing your mate being a huge one, definitely for me, it's almost impossible and even counterintuitive to see the good in it. It never occurs to you that the trials can produce wisdom, but they can and do. God held on to me. I just trusted him and leaned into the truth that his plan is always for not only my best, but his best for everyone whose life I touch. As his disciple, my responsibility and choice is to trust in his goodness and promise. A measure of faith is given to each of us at salvation. And faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. I've been and still am given countless opportunities to exercise that muscle. And few things will do that, like the death of a loved one, serious health issues, etc. But I have a choice to lean into his truth versus giving in. This is a person in our church who's gathered a community of people who are going through the trial, who have asked God for the training wheels and are choosing to pedal are choosing to persevere, are choosing to believe that the God who has brought deliverance in the past will bring deliverance in the present and deliverance in the future and that there is something good, not just for them, but for the people around them. She has an integrated faith and is modeling that for others, inviting, that, uh, inviting others and us into that. She is living out that an integrated faith gets us through the hard times, the stress tests, and brings us to the good. The invitation today is simple, to embrace an integrated faith. To ask for those training wheels and to pedal. And here's how I want you to do that this week. Here are four ways you can remain integrated in the stress tests of life. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me while I work through these quickly. I want you to pick the one that's for you or the two that are for you to this week. First is to resist the mirage. There's an oasis coming. Wait for it. The second is to remember Look to your own story or to the story of others for how God has delivered and believe he will deliver again. To ask for the training wheels. Let God show you what the path is to move ahead. And then to pedal, to persevere, to press on, to receive the good that is coming. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you 
thank you that the stress tests of life are not ones we have to go through on our own. Thank you that in the midst of the hardest situations of our lives, you give us a guarantee that we can receive wisdom. We can know the path forward if we ask for it. Lord, may we ask with faith, and then may we peddle. Thank you for the story of someone in our church who is persevering. Would you bless and strengthen her and the people she is gathering around her? And may we continue to hear the stories of how you are bringing good on the other side of hard situations. In Jesus' name, amen.